I want you to think about something. Um, Ron, if you want a physical copy, I have a few. Can Ron, Ron has them. I don't know how many I have left, but there's some here. If you want a digital copy, uh, scan the QR code. It'll come up as a PDF on your phone or your device. Anybody else need a copy over here? Um, bear witness to God's kingdom. Uh, that's our title of our sermon today. And I want you to think about something here. Um, we uh, are witnesses no matter what. No matter what, we are a witness. The question is, is it a good witness or a bad witness? Oh, so many times I'm such a bad witness, right? I get in the line at Walmart or the, those self-checkout things, and I get frustrated, right? I mean, it's not that poor lady's fault that's trying to manage 15 of those things, is it? Right? But I'm just an, I'm a hypocrite, right? Yeah? Because I get on this rant about how they should hire more tellers and, and, you know, if they want me to pay for my stuff or not steal stuff, then they should have a teller that, right? Ever been there? Maybe not. Maybe it's only me. You know, when you're driving down the road and you got that cute little fish on the back of your car and you're in a hurry. We bear his name, right? And so either way, we are his witness. Now, we want to be what kind of witness, George? Good witnesses, right? And so what we do, what we say uh, is important. But really, it starts in what we believe and what we think, doesn't it? Right? That's where the acting out comes. I mean, if I'm thinking wrongly, right, then I'm going to act wrongly, right? So I, I need to have my thinking right. I need to be in con uh, context and in contact with who? God, right? I need my vertical alignment. All right. So we are witnesses. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. We're talking about today the, the witnesses of Revelation, the two witnesses. Now, I'm not going to spend time debating who these are. In fact, I'll just direct you to t go somewhere else uh, another uh, night for that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about too much of the timing. I'm going to direct you to some other discussion. Because really, I think the thrust of this passage is to be a witness. And what God does for his witnesses and so if you want to need to go home right now, go ahead and go home because there's the message. Be a witness. Be a good witness. But let's talk about and unpack this in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, 1, 1 through 2 says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the cord outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay? Which is three and a half years if you do the math. Um, so why is he measuring? What, what's the whole point of this? Well, Measuring in scripture signifies either judgment or protection. 
judgment or protection. And protection comes because measuring also can mean ownership, so you belong, right? The temple belongs to God. The people of God belong to God. But if they belong to him, then you are protected by him. So measuring typically means judgment or protection. You can look up those verses. I'm not going to read them because I don't have time. This whole passage, uh, this whole first part of measuring the temple is really based on Ezekiel chapter 40. I'm not going to read all that. That's huge and long and very detailed. Um, Here in the text, we don't even see uh, John uh, measuring, but it's the idea. Uh, I think he does probably end up measuring. We just don't have it recorded. So the context determines whether it's judgment or whether it's protection. In, In my opinion here, the measurement is protection. And part of that is because of the lens I wear. I wear a futurist, idealist lens. That's the lens I typically read Revelation through. Uh, that's my, well, futurist is definitely my I- upbringing. Idealist is something that I like, and so I adopt. Um, I don't have a preterist lens, okay? Um, so I, I interpret this passage differently. So here, th- the measurement is protection. So he is measuring to demonstrate protection of the temple. He's measuring to demonstrate protection of the worshipers. Okay? Protection of the temple. Protection of the worshipers. But not those outside the temple. Right? Leave that out, he says. For it will be trampled underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years. So what temple could he be measuring? This is the debate. And this really, the temple that he could be measuring depends on what lens you wear when reading this. Okay? Does that make sense? So you're going to interpret this differently. So let's talk about temples for a second. Okay? About Jewish temples. There's all kinds of temples, right? And, uh, And we are the temple of God, right? Right, So there's that whole concept of metaphorical. I'm a temple of God. We're all living stones being built up into the household of God, being knit together, coming together to glorify and praise God in, in the fullness. Right, and, and this building is just a place for us to occupy. But how, how many of us call this the church? Let's be honest. We all do. Right, right? So there's a physical aspect and a spiritual aspect. So what temple could he be measuring? Well, there are four possibilities for which temple he is measuring for for protection or judgment, okay? For protection or judgment, right? It can go both ways depending on how you interpret the context, right? I don't know if you can read that, but the second temple. So there's actually, well, there's been two temples. The first temple was Solomon's temple, okay? And it was destroyed in 586 B.C., right? Then they went into captivity for 70 years. Roughly, they came out, and they rebuilt the temple. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, I believe, okay? So then the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was there. It was the temple that Christ came to. It's the temple that Christ flipped the papers over, right? It's the temple that he taught in, okay, and preached in. Okay? But this temple was highly improved by Herod the Great, who was a builder. He loved the building, so he made it very extravagant. You go to Israel today, the remains of that temple are what you see. Even like the, the stones, the willing wall 
is a retaining wall for the temporal mount. Okay? And Herod, the great, built that. Okay? That's the second temple. That temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Okay? So the second temple of John's day was destroyed in 70 A.D. It was being measured not for protection, but for destruction. This is a preterist view of this passage. And they like to grab this and say, John is measuring that temple, therefore the book of Revelation is written before 70 A.D. And I, I personally think the book of Revelation is written in around in the 90s A.D., okay? And there's different reasons, and I'm not going to get into that, but this is a, a dating point for them. And so they hold on to that pretty hard because there's not a lot of other dating points. The name of 666, Nero, would be another dating point for them. Uh, the church, the second thing, would be the church as the temple of God, as illustrated in Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. This would signify the protection of those who believe. This would be more of an idealist view, okay? So, so it's the church. It, it's not anything about Israel. It's not anything about, about uh, Jews. This is representing the church because the church is the temple of God, right? And so he's measuring the church for protection of those who believe, okay? So that's the second view of this passage uh, of what temple they're measuring. The third temple, now this is the futurist view, okay? The third temple, that's the temple that will be built before Christ returns. Now, right now in Israel, there's a war going on. It's a very unstable region. Uh, Hamas has attacked them yesterday morning at 6.30. Uh, they, Hamas from Gaza Strip uh, launched thousand, over 5,000 rockets, and uh, a, a force of like 300 took them by surprise on their, on their Sabbath, on their morning of rest. The, the, the army was caught by surprise. They knocked down a huge section of France, infiltrated uh, cities in Israel, took prisoners, uh, paraded them down the street in Gaza. We need to pray for Israel. The, the war, uh, obviously, Benjamin Netanyahu, Netanyahu, how do you want to say his name? Sorry, Benjamin, I messed your name up, has declared war on Gaza. Not, not an operation, but war. Okay, so we need to pray for that whole situation. We need to pray for Israel. We do need to pray for the, uh, the Palestinians. The Palestinians, I think, as an individual, like just people, the normal people, they have it really bad, right? We know how hard it is for us to affect our own government, right? Right? We know how hard that is, right? Well, they have really no say <laughs> in their own government, right? None. It's like a dictatorship, right? And so they get all the crap dumped on them. Does that make sense? So we need to pray for them too, right? Uh, we need to pray for God to walk, right? And Christ to come back and make this all right, okay? Now, if you're a futurist, you know that there's going to be a false peace at some point in time, right? If you're a futurist, you believe that there's going to be a temple rebuilt. There's a whole institute called the Temple Institute. They're ready. <laughs> They're ready to rebuild the temple. They got like all the implements made. You can go and see a menorah that they've done. and I mean, it's all ready. Everything's ready to go. They just have to put up the structure. Okay? So the futurist believes the third temple will be rebuilt uh, before Christ returns. This would be the temple that Ezekiel is measuring in Ezekiel 40. So they believe that that's the temple that will be rebuilt. 
Uh, and that's Ezekiel 40, we've already talked about, is the Old Testament uh, base for this passage. Uh, and then this would signify that Jews are being protected, right? Because it's the third temple, the Jewish temple being rebuilt, right? And then it's those who worship there. Who would worship there? Jews, so that's who's being protected. During the time of Jacob's trouble, which the time of the tribulation, right? And, and the tribulation is about God's judgment on the world, okay? It's about God's judgment on the world and the re refining, redeeming of God's people, Israel, okay? So it's two things. Does that make sense? God's judgment on the world, which is what the day of the Lord is. So to me, the day of the Lord is God's judgment on the world with comma, culminates, that's the word I'm trying to say, culminates in the second coming of Christ. So the day of the Lord is not one day, but it's a period. In fact, a futurist, from my opinion, uh, would say that the day of the Lord is seven years. The same amount of time that God's tribulation upon the people of Israel, the trial, is seven years. And now we have this number three and a half years, which three and a half is half of seven, right? Okay. All right. So the fourth view, which is basically an, a combination of the idealist and the futurist, okay? So the, the third temple, which is built before Christ returns, so it's the third temple, and it is representing, so this is, this is the kick of the combination. It's representing Israel and the church, okay? It's representing both, being preserved during God's judgment of the world, i.e., the day of the Lord, okay? That's the combination of the idealist and the futurist view, and that's really why I sit at this point of my study. Um, I don't hold that like with a rod of iron, obviously, but, you know, that's my opinion. So it's the third temple that's going to be rebuilt. Hasn't been built yet, but will be built. And the whole point of measuring is, in my opinion, protection, right? And we're talking about being witnesses, right? And God protects his witnesses. And those who are not his people, right? The, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations, it's left unmeasured, right? It's trampled underfoot by uh, the nations for how long? 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. The idea that it is unprotected, right? It's not protected by God. It's not uh, kept from the enemy. Okay, so God, church, God protects his witnesses. God protects his witnesses. Now, I understand that protection here can get kind of confusing because we look at it oftentimes protection through a lens of comfort, right? Uh, if he protects me, why am I sick today, right? If he protects me, why did they get in a car accident? If he protects me, fill in the blank, right? We have all kinds of ills that happen to us, right? We even have spiritual attacks that happen to us. So if he protects me, why do these attacks happen? Well, I would say that he protects in that everything that happens to you as a witness, as a child of God, he uses for his glory and for sanctifying, changing, and transforming you into the image of Jesus. And he's protecting you. That's protection. This doesn't mean that nothing bad happens to you because we all know that stuff happens, right? 
But I want you to know that the stuff that happens, he is filtering through his purposes and his plan. God protects his witnesses. And if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are a witness. Say, I am a witness. Say, I am protected. That is who you are. That is your reality. And as a protected witness, we can relax. Right? Because sometimes witnessing is terrifying, isn't it? Right? And really, we'll witness regardless of whether we say something or do something. Right? We, we bear his name, so we're a witness regardless. But actually engaging it is terrifying. Or being defensive is hard, right? Or being, I don't know, if defi- it's hard not to be feel threatened, especially if the person you're talking to is a little hostile, right? And in our culture, it's becoming more and more unpopular to talk about Jesus, isn't it? It's no longer really cool to be a Christian. used to be. We're becoming a minority. That's okay. God's got it, right? Revelation 11.3, man, I got to speed up. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 1260 days is three and a half years. So it's talking about the same time period. What is behind the 42 months and the 1260 days? Three and one half years, times, times, and half a time. If you're reading through Revelation, it'll show up that way. Excuse me. Well, if you're a preterist, these times speak of the time of the siege of Jerusalem, okay, in 70 A.D. It started in the fall of 66 A.D. and ended on September 26, 70 A.D. However, the, max, the math worked out to 48 months, which is four years. So, I don't know, maybe you'll fudge the math, okay? I don't know, whatever you need to do there. If you're an idealist, this number symbolizes end times time period representing trial for the people of God and God's judgment on the world. It's, it's an undisc- undisclosed really time. It, it's not bound to time. It's just a time of judgment and refinement. Okay? That's all they do with it. They're kind of wishy-washy. Yeah. But that's okay. So if you're a futurist, this time period represents the last half of Daniel's 70th week, which is the last half of the tribulation. Okay? For... For the discussion on Daniel's 70th week, uh, you can go to Wednesday night uh, Bible study, uh, 913 on YouTube, Facebook, and listen to that. Um, You can also just scan that QR code. Don't listen to it while I preach, but you can save it for later. Um, um, But yeah, there it is uh, for your perusal. Also, since these times are dealing with a calendar, and I think sometimes we just assume that all calendars, the calendar that everybody's used for all time, which is not true. Um, so uh, there's a dense, a very dense, uh, but interesting discussion. And I don't agree with everything he says, but at least it is exposing you to information there. But a discussion on what calendar these calculations should be made on uh, from Daniel. So you can listen to that podcast there, um, uh, Naked Bible Podcast. I think it's like episode 381, I think. But the QR code is there, so you can scan that, listen to that. Again, it's very dense. Because it's 
I don't know, kind of confusing with all the math stuff. But basically, a 364-day calendar is what that is probably based on, not a 365-day calendar. And those all theological reasons and, and arguments for that. So what are these speculations on the identity of the two witnesses? Um, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. The answers for this question, uh, please listen to Wednesday's study on 927. Uh, we can speculate about whether it, yeah, you just go there. I'm not taking the time today. So the identity of the two witnesses is not critical to the meaning of the passage, okay? And, and a lot of people get caught up in that, and then they miss the whole point of the passage. So it's not critical to the meaning of the passage. The dates and the timing and the three and a half years, not critical to the meaning of the passage. But the meaning, but being a witness is. That's what this passage is about, being a witness for God. We are called to be witnesses. Amen? So what does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean? Well, Acts 1.8 says, But you will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Being a witness means that you speak of Jesus, that you represent Jesus wherever you are at. Whether it be in my home, whether it be in my neighborhood, whether it be in my village, whether it be in my town, whether it be in my county, whether it be in my state, whether it be in my country, whether it be in my world. We represent Jesus. Whether it be in my social media platforms, right, my email my web history, <laughs> we represent Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, skipping to Acts 4, 19 through 20, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Right? So as a witness, we don't answer to other people. We answer to God. For we cannot, speak of, cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. 1 John 1, 1 through 3 says, That which from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and having touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it or witness to it, witness about it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We testify to having a relationship with the creator of a uni the universe. What a better privilege than that. That's what we testify to. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word for witness is motis. This is what we get the word martyr from. Martyr in modern day has come to mean one who dies for their belief. In 2022, according to the Open Doors, who works with the persecuted church, 5,621 people, Christians, gave their lives for Jesus. 
in America, there's not really going to be a huge opportunity to lay all lives on the line in that way. Sometimes in school shootings, they have that context, but not always. Sometimes it's just an act of violence, right? Not, nothing religious at all to it. But in all recent history, I mean, I can remember like some of the first shootings were over religious issues and ideology, right? And there was teenagers who gave their lives for Jesus. So we are called to be a witness. A witness testifies to what he or she has seen and heard. We have seen the work of God. We've seen it in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We've seen it in our own lives, right? We have that relationship with him. We've heard the word of God preached to us, right? Week after week, I stand up here and I preach and I proclaim the word. And then you have the word of God in your hands, right? Whether it be on a cell phone or in a book, it's there for you, right? You know the word of God. You're learning the word of God. So we are to follow the apostles' example and bear witness to what God has done and is doing despite the cost, right? And not only are we to bear witness and talk about that, but our lives are to reflect that, right? Because some of the worst black eyes the church has is hypocritical Christians, right? That's, that's the biggest black eye. That, that really the church has. People who say they're Christians, but don't act like it. Yeah? You ever had that contractor or that person come work for you, and they're like, yeah, brother, sister, hire me, you know? And then you got to take them to small claims court to get the job done. And you're like, what's going on? I thought you were a brother in Christ. Right? Or you're tempted to take them to small claims court, but you just say, forget it, because I don't want to sue a brother. Right? I don't know. It's pretty sad. So let's bear witness and be good witnesses. Will you be a good witness for Jesus? And I know each of you try. And when we fail, we don't want to just heap on the devil's lies, right? Because he has mercy and grace for us, right? That's another thing we have to push back on that hypocritic. We say sinners <laughs> saved by grace, right? That's really a pushback on all those hypocrites, isn't it? Right? Revelation eleven four. Those are the these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What is meant by the two olive trees and the two lampstands? That's the two witnesses. The olive trees are two olive trees are representing the two witnesses, and two lampstands are representing the two uh, witnesses. The the, the representation the the background passage for this is Zechariah 4. We've looked at this in the past. I'm not going to read it today, but if you want to read it, you can. But the background passage is, is Zechariah 4 in the Old Testament, uh, the image of the olive trees and the lampstands. The symbolism for olive trees, I think, is Israel. Okay? I think it is Israel. God calls Israel an olive tree in Jeremiah 11:16. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. So there's judgment on Israel for their disobedience. They're being disciplined. But here he calls them a olive tree, right? 
Paul, walking off the identity of olive tree in Romans 11, when speaking of God's faithfulness to Israel, that he's not done with Israel, that he hasn't forgotten Israel, and he's also speaking of Gentiles sharing in the salvation, for Jesus is a Israelite, a Jew, right? And the Messiah came through Israel to us, right? It, it was to the Jews. So we share in salvation, which was to the Jews first, and then to us, right? And I got my Jew here, Franklin's my, it says he has some Jewish heritage, so um, he's my only Jewish guy in my, in my congregation, so maybe a Jew will come later on. So. But, but it was to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. And God has not forsaken Israel as a nation, as a people. It says, but if some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant <laughs> toward the branches. If you all remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. In Romans eleven twenty four. if we skip down because I don't have time to read that whole passage, but it says, For if you were cut off by what is by nature a wild olive tree, speaking of Gentiles, and grafted in contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, speaking of Israel, how much more will these natural branches, speaking of Israel, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Right? So Israel has a place and a plan in God's kingdom, right? But so does the church, right? And the church, we're the wild olive trees, right? We get grafted in to the cultivated olive tree, right? right? And some of Israel, because of unbelief, are not grafted in. But belief is the key to all of us being grafted in, right? To Abraham, right? So Jesus already, you know, that's the, that's the olive tree. The olive tree represents who? Israel, right? right? And, and, and Paul recognizes that. Um, so, but, and Jesus, the lampstands, and we have two lampstands, right? Jesus already identified the lampstands. Uh, remember, it's a menorah, and it has seven, right? And now it's down to two. So Jesus identified the symbolism of the lampstands in Revelation 120, where he says it's the seven churches, seven churches. So here we have only two. It is interesting that there are only two because uh, there's only two churches who didn't have a rebuke, Smyrna and Philadelphia, okay? Only two that didn't get a rebuke. They didn't receive a, a reprimand from Jesus. And yet we, and now we have two witnesses who are represented by two lampstands, right? So now we have Israel and the church. So the two witnesses are possibly a Jew and a Gentile standing side by side representing Israel and the church, unified in the testimony of Jesus as Messiah, the Savior of the world, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? Amen. That is awesome. Because right now, we don't really stand with a whole lot of Jewish brothers. Do you know that? Right? They, they're very hostile towards us. And I, and I understand why. Because we, as Christians, did some horrendous things to them. Right? Things that are almost as bad as the Holocaust. 
right? And some of the holocaust was done in the name of Jesus. doesn't make it right, but it, that's how it was justified. So I ask you this, how is your witness? Is it unifying to the body of Christ? Does it bring unity or is it causing division? Would you stand side by side, unified in witness of the coming of Christ, unified in witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead? Revelation 11, 5 through 6 says, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm, oops, I hit the button too strong. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no may, rain may fall. And the days of their prophesying, in the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So the Old Testament background for these miracles are the events that happened in the lives of Moses and Elijah predominantly. Uh, this is part of the reason why some identify the two witnesses as Moses and Elijah. Trying to identify people as these two witnesses, I think, is just, in my opinion, a waste of time. Now, it's fun to listen to a speculation on that. That's why I did a whole study on that, and you can listen to that. But it's really not pertinent to the passage, okay? So what are their God-given powers? I want to make sure you know these aren't power. This isn't supernatural. Uh, I mean, these aren't. Well, these are supernatural powers, but these aren't superhumans, right? They're given power by God, okay? The power comes from who? God. Now, if you put on a materialistic lens here and you try to explain this materialistically, like how can a human breathe fire, right? It just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, you, I guess you have those guys who swallow fire and breathe fire and things like that. But, I mean, but overall, humans don't breathe fire, right? Right? I mean, sometimes we have fire coming out of other places when we light a match. But, you know, other than that. So the first one is their power to breathe fire, right? And you can look at 2 Kings 1, 9 through 16. Uh, Elijah calls fire down from heaven and destroys uh, 50 armies that are coming to him, right? Until the guy humbles himself. When he comes to him. And then Jeremiah 5.14 speak, talks about the, the word of God burning and being a fire in the mouths of his prophets. Okay, so it can have a dual thing where it's them speaking forth the word of God, um, but it also uh, a sense of protection. What does God do? He protects his witnesses, right? And so they don't like the testimony of these witnesses. They're trying to take them out. And God, well, they are able to call down fire, right? The power to stop the rain, right? That uh, hap uh, happens in uh, 1 Kings 17.1. It's commented on Luke 4.25 and in James, but he stopped the rain, it's interesting, for three and a half years. The power to turn water to blood. Of course, that's in Exodus. Moses does that to the Nile and to the fresh water. And then uh, the power to strike with every kind of plague, uh, Exodus 7 through 10 would be the plagues, right? The 10 plagues of, of Egypt. So there's your background on that. These powers are like reading a superhero comic, right? Um, I like watching those types of shows, but, but the, it's not some genetic mutation, right? It's God-given power. And, I, and we can take this for us, that God empowers his witnesses to accomplish the mission, right? All authority has been given to 
Christ. And he then empowers us with that authority. And that power is not in personal, but it's embodied in the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who lives with us, who, who abides in us and gives us power to accomplish the mission. And the mission is to proclaim. The mission is to live a life that's, that screams Jesus. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That could also be go or also be as you go. Okay? So as you live life, make disciples. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am what? With you always to the end of the age. We are empowered by Jesus to be a witness. Let's be his witnesses. Amen? Revelation 11, 7 through 8 says, And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. The enemy only succeeds when they are finished witnessing. Right? And he really hasn't succeeded, has he? he? He thinks he's won, just like he thought he won when he crucified Jesus, but he didn't win, right? He's totally duped, right? So he thinks he's won when he kills these two witnesses, but he's only finished, their testimony is only finished when God is finished, when God's purpose and plan is completed. Did you know that God has a purpose and plan for each of us to be his witness in the context in which you stand, right? Maybe you're older and you have like five, six active appointments a week, you know, probably not six, but maybe. Did you know that you are to be a witness as you walk and go into that doctor's office? Oh, man, that's hard. That's so hard. Because sometimes these doctors, I mean, they just get these ideas in their head. They don't listen to you, right? But you're called to be a witness there. Many of you uh, go and work a job, eight to five, punch in, punch out, right? You're called to be a witness there. Some of you uh, go to school. You're called to be a witness there, right? Wherever we go, as we go, we are to be a witness. And it's God's purpose and plan for us. The beast is embodied in the figure of the Antichrist. We're going to look at him more in chapter 13. I'm not going to go into that. I don't have time. Um, they stood in Jerusalem, though, bearing witness for their appointed time, right? Three and a half years for their time. You have an appointed time to stand and bear witness. God knows the number of days that he has given to each of us. Will we bear witness? Will we stand and bear witness? Will we live? In Papa, in Earlville, in Lee, in Rochelle, in Illinois, wherever you live, you're called to be a witness. Revelation 11, 9 through 13 says, For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. A great fear fell on all who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Woohoo! here we go, right? Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemy watched them. You know, mid-trib, some people take that to say that's the rapture of the church. Uh, as a mid-tribber, just so you know. I don't think that the context renders that well enough, but it, it could be. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Church, we might fear rejection. We might fear death. But we're not to fear. For God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us, right? And he's freely given us his own son. He who died on the cross, right, calls us to die, right, and gives us what? Life, right? So the ones who need to fear are those who reject the message of life. And I, I implore you, don't reject the message of life. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And you will have a relationship with him. Sadly, often all witness is not received, is it? Sometimes we do a very poor job of presenting it. But uh, it's still not received, right? And the, wit the world celebrates their death, right? Yet it is not their end, right, but the beginning. For they are raised and ascended to heaven. Death is not our end. We will be raised. Amen? We will be raised and we will ascend to heaven. God raises his witnesses to life, eternal life, and God judges those who reject their testimony. Don't reject the testimony of the Lord. That Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, validating that his death was sufficient, and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And will you be ready for that day? The day of the Lord is coming. We bear witness. We testify to that in our lives, with our actions, with our words. Will you choose to be his witness? Well, you choose. Yes, I, I, I want to be a witness. I want to be a good witness for the Lord. Revelation eleven fourteen says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The death of the two witnesses concludes the second woe of God's judgment. How will we respond to his judgment? Will we be his witnesses? Will we say, yes, the judgments of God in my life are right and true, and I testify to that? to his work in my life, to his work on the cross. And yes, I am a work in progress. And yes, I own my mistakes. And yes, I say I'm sorry. And I repent when I do wrong. Right? Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign 
forever and ever. Here we have a clear example of the already not yet tension. We live in this tension. For Christ has died, right? And he has conquered sin and death. But is sin and death gone? No, not yet. But it will be, right? The world has become Jesus' kingdom, but the fullness of the kingdom has not come in, right? The wrath of God is not finished. It will be finished with the seven bowls of Revelation 15. One is what it talks about there. Church, we bear witness that Jesus' death and resurrection have destroyed the devil. That's the already. And who has the power over death, right? And Jesus has set free all those who believe in him. But the not yet is that he's coming again to rule all things forever. We bear witness. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Saying, we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nation raged, but your wrath came at the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of earth, fallen angels, including Satan. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen through his temple. There was flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a heavy hail. So why do the nations rage? This is Psalm 2. This is what this passage is based off of. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rule, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their goods from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord says to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, speaking of Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in the son. How do we take refuge in the son? We take refuge in the son in the cross. The cross has bought our refuge. His blood shed. We have refuge in the Son by believing that Jesus died on the cross, believing that he was raised from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death, bringing us into relationship with God. That's how we have refuge. That's what we bear witness to. Will we bear witness to his reign with hearts of thanksgiving, his reign in my life now, his reign that is coming? Our witness will not be well received for the nation's rage, right? But that is God's problem. 
which he solves in his coming wrath, which ends in the judgment of the dead and the destruction of the destroyers, hell, death, all the demonic forces. The Lord rewards all his witnesses, both small and great. Amen? And he rewards them with the fullness of his presence. Think of Revelation 22 through 26. This is why you get that peak of the Ark of the Covenant, that, that place where God rules and sits from, from heaven, but that mercy seat where the blood of Christ has been sprinkled, right? And that Ark and that place will be God and, and God will be with us and we will be with God. Holy, holy in the, his presence, rewarded for being the witnesses that he's called us to do. So I challenge each of you to be his good witnesses as we go about the life he has so freely given us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for walking in our lives. We thank you for the charge and the mission of witnessing for you. We pray that our lives would really just rotate around a relationship with you and the outcome of that would be a good witness. We pray for that strength and that encouragement and that we would continue to keep our eyes fixed on you. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.